I tell people that all the time, like, you know, they, they look at the stuff that we did and they think that it's super sexy and what seems like the most fun, like you've gone through so much training and, and process by the time you get there that it's not, it's not fun while you're doing it. Very little of it is actually fun. Yeah. I think the, the biggest one that, you know, that really checks that is uh, skydiving for sure. Yeah, that's you, a great like, example. You can take something that is a bucket list item for most people and just make it miserable. <laughs> just make it <laughs> the least amount of fun. It's like, we're going to jump out of plane, but you're going to do it with all the stuff on, on oxygen with nods at night and enjoy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which even describing that, like people are, are listening and thinking, well, that sounds kind of fun. Like, trust, trust me. It's kind of not like yeah. the fun has been taken out of it. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. What's the toughest wild animal that you think you could be in a fight? <laughs> uh oh well, i don't know that'd be a tough one i'd be an extremely small black bear like a nice sized cub you know? yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a tricky one yeah and i think once a bear gets into that like 80 to 100 pound range it's going to be a lot to handle yeah yeah you know you're talking about grown man strength plus claws and teeth so you're, i don't know yeah Okay. Black bear cub. Yeah. Small, small cub. Small cub. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so where'd you grow up? I grew up in a small town in Michigan, South rural Michigan, but really more Amish than, than anything else around there. Corn land, soybeans, okay. that kind of setting. Did you uh, come from a military family? Yep. So my grandfather and my mom's side was army korean war vet my dad was a marine my sister's in the uh she's an army officer and then you know i went to the navy okay did that embarrass your dad no he actually asked me not to join the marines <laughs> so it worked out pretty well it's a funny story about how that all worked out too but well tell it i like stories so uh i wrestled in college for a year and i had kind of a deal with my parents about scholarships and if I'd go to the military or college and got some scholarships. So I went to college and on the way home, I was like, you know, what? I'm college isn't for me. I'm going to go 
to the recruiting office. I went to go to the Marine recruiting office and they were closed. And the Navy guy pops his head out. They're right next to each other. And he's yeah. like, to join the military. And I was like, sure, why not? <laughs> and yeah, that was the end of that. I used to uh, take them over there all the time. And the Navy and the Marine guy recruiters would bicker back and forth. And I'd like have pull-up contests against the Marine recruits and stuff. It was pretty funny. Nice. Um, I think a lot of people's entry into military service is, is kind of similar with those recruit depots. And it's, it's sort of like when you pull off an interstate and they're like trying to figure out what fast food you're going to go to. It's like, what's open, what's easy. And there you go. Yeah. 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 My little hometown one too. It was funny. Cause it was like, they were all on a line and yeah. there was Marines, Navy, Air Force were in like these little offices. And then the army had like this whole like terrace Right. It's this massive area. And it's like, well, it's not even fair because we got like TVs and couches. And so, did you go in with the SEAL contract? I did. Yeah. Okay. And that meeting before that, I had no clue anything about buds. Yeah. Any of that stuff. So, before I went in and talked to that recruiter, that was it. My, uh, my little brother Lars has got a, a buds contract right now and he's leaving in 20 days. Um, nice. I don't, I don't think he knows what he's getting into yet, but what's, what's the process like? A lot of people don't know. They don't, they think that they know stuff about seals, but they don't actually know. So what's the process like even to get there? Um, so I was kind of on a sped up timeline. When I went through that whole process, you do your initial PSD that you basically, they kind of rock and stack you. Um, and the PSD, the PST is what? That was at the time, like a 500 meter swim no fins, breaststroke, side stroke, combat side stroke. Uh, and then you did push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups. I don't remember the exact order. Yeah. And then a mile and a half run. To be competitive, I mean, you're basically sub eight minutes on swim and run. And then, you know, 100 push-ups, sit-ups, and 20, 25 pull-ups, I think, is pretty much relatively competitive and, you know, going to get you a contract. There is different for different spec war stuff. You know, there's different Sure. Different qualification standards. Um, and then from there you take, I don't know if they still do it or not. You take like, I think it's called the C sort, which is like some mental aptitude test. Uh, and then they combine the two scores and they kind of figure out how likely you are to quit. Um, you know, easiest way to put it. And then from there, they told me it was going to be about a year and a half before I left. So I was rolled in college for another year and stuff. And then one of the guys dropped out. And I was next, I was scores wise, I believe I was like next in line. So I got to jump in and left two and a half months after that. Okay. Did the standard Navy boot camp. We, we were one of the first 800 divisions. So they actually had a spec war division. And of the hundred people in my boot camp, I think 80 of us had buds contracts. And they had EOD diver swick in there too. Okay. So what, what year is this? Uh, this is 2010. Okay, cool. Um, that's, that's about the time that I was getting into. I started in, into, well, like December of 2009. So basically yeah. the same time frame. And then, uh, so you, you kind of have your, your specialized, uh, boot camp, and that was eight or 10 weeks long, something like that. Yeah. That's like eight weeks. It's pretty much the exact same as Navy boot camp. We just got up like three hours earlier than everybody else and walked two miles to go swim and then back but everything else is virtually the same that sleep portion of it is 
is really hard. I don't think people understand what, uh, what that deep fatigue is like. So how many hours of sleep do you think you were getting a night for those eight weeks? Not much at all. Cause we weren't, there was a bunch of us that didn't think we were getting really good enough workouts. So we kind of do a little workout at night after you know lights were out. So, I mean, maybe like four or five hours tops on a yeah. good night. And that's yeah. if they didn't bust back in and try to do a little raid on us or something like that. <laughs> okay. So you, you pass that portion of it. Then what happens? Then you go to pre-buds. Um, I originally went through pre-buds class 288. Um, actually broke both of my shins and pre buds, uh, stress for our shin splints that turned into stress fractures that turned into full on fractures. So I was rolled for 16 weeks into the next or the two nine zero. Basically, if anybody understands the, you know, the class structure, you got to test out of that. I don't remember. It's the same, same five core exercises, but I think it's like a four mile run, push up, set up, pull up to the two mile swim with fins in a pool. So it's a little bit, you know, harder, more extensive. And then once you pass that and you're in the top, whatever percentage of the class, you then get sent off to Coronado. Yeah. I think I'd rather swim 10 miles with fins than one mile without them. Oh yeah. I was one of the slowest swimmers. I mean, I was a wrestler in rural Michigan ahead. I just sank. And, uh, yeah. the second I put fins on though, I could just cruise yeah. from being one of the slowest to one of the, the faster guys. Yeah. I failed our, um, the Marine officer swim test 23 times. Um, and if I failed it one more time, it was going to roll me back for an entire six month long course. And I managed to pass that one, but it was the same deal. I was a wrestler, um, really dense and I sank like crazy. And as soon as I added Kevlar and, you know, a fake rifle and magazines and all the other bull crap that you have to swim with, it was hopeless <laughs> you know, yeah. I was going down in a trail of tears and bubbles every time. Yeah. So, okay. So pre buds, you busted both your shins. That's a thing that seems a bit like a, a vampire bite. That's hard to come back from. Do they still give you problems? Um, not really. And they, they kind of told me that when we were in pre buds. So like you said, it's, they know it's hard for people to come back from that. I think there were, in uh, LLD land, there were nine of us and they came in like three years before I left and dropped like seven of them. Yeah. So and those are just like, yeah, if you're not meeting our basically healing requirements, you're out. Yeah. I got to stick around and the lady was basically like, you know, once you get there, you're going to be running on soft sand and it's going to be a lot easier on your shins and you'll actually heal more. And once I left there, I really didn't have any issues until like my second deployment when I was running like 25, 30 miles a week on concrete. And that's when they kind of, Bothered me again, but throughout buds, really no issues at all. Gotcha. So how long is buds? Uh, six months. Okay. So, you know, start to finish. And that's, you know, the first three phases of the training plus in dock. Yep. And uh, what was the hardest part of all of that for you? Hardest part for me like personally, I mean, every person's journey is a little bit different, but yeah. the hardest part for me was third phase because it was like that you're so close to getting that carrot finally. That's like on the end of the stick, but you're still just getting hammered 24 seven by these guys. So just, you, you kind of have this feeling of I'm almost there, but it just never seems to ever, never get there. You know, it's just, it's that six months for that like longevity of training where you're just like, man, I just want this to be over at this point. And it just never stops. It feels like. Yeah. 
the physical stuff is, you know, physical. If you don't think you're going to quit, you're not going to quit. If you let that little bit of doubt slip in, you're, you're pretty much done for. So when you start to recognize that doubt, how do you deal with it? Cause it happens to everybody. Everybody gets that yeah. little, that little tinge of fear, like maybe they're not good enough or that they can't quite pull this off or they're too tired or, you know, all the fear. Like how, how do you deal with it? Um, I really dealt with it by the guys you know, around you, your boat crew. I put a lot of pressure on myself to not let the other guys down Yeah, and just to push through no matter what. So it takes the, takes the pressure off of you letting yourself down. And for me personally, how I'm motivated, you know, it's more about not letting other people down. So I didn't want to let those dudes down because you have a boat crew of six guys. One guy already quits. You're down to six. Now you quit. Well, now you're, you're kind of screwing those other guys that are left over. In the civilian world, shaming people is really unacceptable. Um, but in, in the Marine Corps and what you're describing, man, that's the most powerful motivator we have is that fear of, of shame uh, that you're going to let somebody else down. And that's an old thing, you know, that goes all the way back to the Spartans. But I think, I think some civilians could benefit from, from being afraid of, of shaming the people around them and shaming themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So you make it through buds at that point. Are you a, a full grown seal at, or do you have like a follow on specialty school? No. So yeah, you go into SQT, um, seal qualification training. That's when you actually get to learn some very, very basic tactics. Um, you start getting introduced to things like CQC, some of the specialties, um, you go through seer school and that's another six months. So now you're, all you're into it for, at this point, like a year and a half already. Yeah. And, uh, after that, once you finish that, that's when you actually get your trident, but you know, depending on who you ask and what area they're from, you're not still not a seal until you get back from your first deployment. Oh, really? That's how it was, was my first deployment. You know, they take, you know, they, they take your trident basically. And like, you, you know, you still have to earn it. You haven't earned anything yet. And then before that I did three months of uh, modern standard Arabic. So I went to language school for three months to learn Arabic. Was that at Monterey? No, we had our own course. Oh, you did? Yeah. That's cool. We were touring the, the SEAL base at Kodiak when I was up there hunting a couple of years ago. And uh, I was there with an army dude and I was, and he, he came from a part of the army that was really well-funded. And I was wandering around looking at all this stuff and I kind of had my jaw dropped. And he's like, what, what is it, man? It's like, it looks like everything they have works. Like, this is really nice. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a cool spot up there. Um, definitely oh, har yeah. harsh conditions to train in, but that's the idea. When I was there, I was there in February into March in like 2010 <laughs> or 11. Yeah. And there's like a, a wicket where you do your, your like week living out in the bush survival training. And we had to go all the way down to, we had to do it on the base because the seas were too high to get us to this Island to train on. Yeah. And all the coast guard was taken out because the, I mean, they had like record winds. It was like negative 40, negative 50 degrees. And they were like, all right, go, uh, go survive. We'll see in like a couple of days. It's like, sweet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was so cold that we would try to sum some mountains and we had to turn back because any exposed skin was just immediately starting to, starting to get that little bit of frost nip and yeah, that was rough so. and it can happen fast super fast i i got it really for i think probably for the first time this year 
I was coyote hunting on New Year's Eve and it was 23 below zero and we're out on snowmobiles and about oh, 11 o'clock at night, we decided to, to call it and head back. And I didn't make it very far. And I realized that I hadn't got my cheek all the way covered up um, with my balaclava. And I was like, whatever, it's, you know, a 10 minute ride back, no big deal. And that torched it 10, 10 minutes of, oh, yeah. you know, going 30 miles an hour at, you know, 23 below zero. And when you start dropping down into the, the 40 below 50 below range for, for my money, it doesn't really change like how cold it feels. It just changes how long you can be out in it. And that exposed skin, it, it just freezes, you know, you can't help it. Yeah. Yeah. The hurt doesn't really change after that. It's just how long, how long you can really bear it. I lived in Norway um, for a year when I was in high school and I uh, wrestled while I was there and it was, uh, it was 40 below zero for about two weeks and 40 below zero Celsius is the same as 40 below Fahrenheit. So that's where those numbers intersect, but there were so many weird things that happened at that temperature. Like, um, you know, my school bus hit a curb and the tire broke, like the rubber broke you know, and there's, it's just a pile of things that really act differently. But again, like what you're saying, the, the feel of it doesn't really change. The hurt doesn't change. It's just exposure time. But when you're talking about spending multiple days out in that stuff, like that, the margin for error is incredibly low. Yeah. We had a fire rip and we actually found like a, where two trees had fallen over and the root wads were facing each other kind of like this. And oh, nice. We built our structure. And on the other side, we built just a raging fire so that root wire would get heated up. Yeah. Kind of radiate that heat. We got super lucky and finding a pretty, pretty good spot to, to hole up at. But so when you're looking for a spot in a survival situation like that, how do you balance like, hey, we need to get to work and build a shelter right now versus we need to find the right place to do it in? I mean, it's kind of six in one hand, half dozen the other, honestly. Like you can search and search and search until you find that perfect spot, but you're probably never going to find it. You know, yeah. it's risk, risk, reward. So if I'm somewhere and I see water and I see potentially a food source and something that's not ideal, but meets the needs, that's probably going to be better because you're going to burn less calories going to get water, finding food than you are if you're the perfect spot, but you have to walk a mile to get water. And then, you know, it's, it's a little bit different for most people in a survival situation versus in a military survival situation, because you also can't be obvious about where you're doing it. Right. So you've got to pick a spot that, that isn't obvious to somebody who's going to be looking for you. Yeah, absolutely. And that was what's cool about that root wad spot. Cause that was kind of one of the, one of the main wicks, you know, we had our boxes, we had to check and the way those trees were kind of facing and we just kind of stacked up sticks against one of the root wads. It just looked like roots and you know, stuff in the mast right there. So it was actually pretty nice. Pretty good for that. The stuff's fun when you're looking back on it and thinking about it, but it's not very fun while you're doing it. No, not at all. It is, but it's not at the same time. Yeah. The bonding is fun, but you know, afterwards you definitely, you definitely laugh about how much it sucks more than anything. I tell people that all the time. Like, you know, they, they look at the stuff that we did and they think that it's super sexy and what seems like the most fun, like you've gone through so much training and, and process by the time you get there that it's not, it's not fun while you're doing it. Very little of it is actually fun. Yeah. I think the, the biggest one that, you know, that really checks that is uh, skydiving for sure. Yeah, that's you a great like, example. 
you can take something that is a bucket list item for most people and just make it miserable. <laughs> just make it <laughs> the least amount of fun. It's like, we're going to jump out of plane, but you're going to do it with all the stuff on, on oxygen with nods at night and enjoy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which even describing that, like people are, are listening and thinking, well, that sounds kind of fun. Like, trust, trust me. It's kind of not like yeah. the fun has been taken out of it. Fun went over for sure. <laughs> So what team did you end up on when you hit the fleet? So I was uh, on team three on the, on the West coast. Okay. Were you ever there at the same time as Eli Crane? Nope. He left right before I got there. I believe. Okay. Have you met Eli? He's a great dude. I haven't, no. Yeah. Yeah. He's a sweetheart. He's a sweetheart. Okay. Um, so where's team three based? We're based? There was base out of Coronado. So we got to, you know, our office looked straight on the ocean. So it's pretty awesome. That's, that's the good life. Yeah. Board shorts and flip-flops for the, pretty much the uniform every day. So. Yeah. And then, uh, what was your, what was your operational load? Like, like how often were you deploying? So I did see, I checked in the team three in I want to say like September, October, and we deployed like August the following year. We had a kind of a condensed cycle. I got super lucky and got to go to a bunch of good schools as a, as a new guy, I got to go to sniper school and a bunch of other schools. And uh, so that really eats up that. And then you go into your, your unit level training, which is kind of where you start working in the enablers and start building your SOPs as a troop. And then you have professional, professional development, which kind of gets eaten up real quick and then you deploy. So kind of do that every, it's supposed to be like a two-year cycle, but it never works out I don't think, quite two years. Yeah. And how long were the deployments? My first was, I debated a seven month, just under seven. My second one was right around seven. There was supposed okay. to be six, but you know, it yeah. go over. Sure. Yeah. And then you end up waiting on flights and all kinds of craziness. Yeah. Where did you deploy to? Uh, my first deployment, I was in the Philippines, but I was all over the South Pacific. I had to live in a pretty much a grass hut in the jungle for the first half of my deployment, um, training their special forces essentially. And and I helped you know, aiding the operations on there. And then the second half of that appointment, I kind of traveled all over doing JSETs for their special forces units. My second deployment, I went to the Middle East in uh, the Korea, I was a Korea element. So we were out of Abu Dhabi. And there I traveled all over the place. I went to Tajikistan and just all of these cool places, really just doing JSETs. And then my third and fourth deployments, I was in, Djibouti and then I did a, a quick one to Afghanistan. <laughs> what made Afghanistan quick? Uh just the nature of the mission, essentially. Yeah. Gotcha. Did you have a, a specialty within the team or or a job or or was it kind of mission-based since you'd gotten to go to so many different schools? Um, I was kind of our primary sniper. My on a first deployment, our LPO was really a primary sniper, but because he was LPO, I kind of fit in. Um, our second one, I was a squad leader, so I was a assault team leader. So that kind of takes you out of the specialties for like breacher, sniper, comms. I was still sniper slash point man. And then I actually went over and I was a uh, dog handler for my next two. So that was pretty much. What kind of dog did you have? I had, uh, he was a half Malinois, half shepherd. Uh, named Lucifer. He was a monster. Did the he most have... working dogs are 65 pounds. He was about 90, 95 pounds. 
Did he have metal teeth? No, no, he still had all his teeth. It's funny, he's actually missing like two teeth next to his canine, so we had these little buck teeth. And <laughs> when those things got a hold of you, it sucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he could auger auger his way through the bite suit sometimes. Oh man, yeah, and him being that big, his he learned through some some bad decoys, which is somebody that's in a in a bite suit, and uh, he learned through some bad decoys that he could use his weight and throw people on the ground. Yeah, when a dog gets all four paws paws on the ground, it, they're a lot more comfortable. <laughs> and he would he would just shut people around. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. So that's uh that's somewhere north of the bear cub that you'd want to fight. Yeah, I'd probably take the bear cub over Lou for sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. Uh, is he still alive? Yeah, he's actually uh, sitting in my house right now. Oh, that's great. We re- we retired on the same day, so I got to take him home with me. Now he uh, sleeps in bed every day with my four-year-old and is just completely domesticated. It's pretty funny. What do you do to be able to give a dog that switch where it might have to detect or, or bite somebody, but it's also be got to be able to just chill out and be a pet? Um, I think it's it's really dog dependent. Lou is always kind of a super special dog. And anybody that you know listens that knows Lou, and they completely get it. Like he was a dog that you could go do a mission with and then the next day be chilling and sitting in the team room with you no problem as long as you didn't try to take his tongue from him you're you're pretty safe okay or got if that popped out got in the in the way of the the chasing velociraptor behind the tongue but (laughs) yeah he was just super super good about that um i always there's kind of different mentalities i think between handlers old school new school a bunch of different uh approaches to it but i i socialized him a lot with the guys but I also allowed him to kind of be in those situations with the guys, but then also be decompressing with them at the same time where most people, most people keep their dogs in a crate or don't really get them around the team room. They don't get to really see that, you know, they don't get to see that it's when the guys are here, it's not always on or go time. And he had a switch where he was very uh, ball driven. So he was, he was super eager to please. Yeah. He was all about the commands, all about, making, you know, making me happy and doing what I wanted them to do sometimes. But, you know, so I think it's super dog dependent because you get some dogs that are just, they're just jerks. They're yeah. just, they'll bite you just to bite you. But and those dogs are just, you can't really do those kind of things with them. But hmm. Did you think that it was pretty valuable to have a dog for the type of missions you were doing? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, there's a lot of people too that, you know, owe their lives to the, the canine units and those dogs, they, they do a ton. And, you know, they're, they lay their lives down for their teammates just as, just as much as the other way around, you know, and that unit's super tight knit. Yeah. Their dogs are, they can smell things that humans obviously will never detect. So it's definitely a, a super valuable asset. And I think as technology is advancing, the people who want to be more technology driven are kind of getting away from them a little bit more, but, you know, technology, I don't think we'll ever be able to completely replace an animal that can can be utilized as a tool like that. Yeah. One of the things that I don't think people give enough credit to is the type of cohesion that comes from just having a dog around. We only did one mission. I think that, that an adjacent force had a dog that I can remember. I forget a lot, but that, that dog was tactically worthless. I don't think he'd ever found a bomb in his life, but it was like the one thing that everybody could agree on. And it was so great just to have a dog around. And, uh, 
yeah, he rode around up on the turret of my tank. He was up on the gun mantle and, you know, my Marines gave him a, a set of goggles and made a little cape for him. And it was hilarious, you know, but such a huge morale booster just, just to have a dog there. And then if you have a dog that can actually be good at its job, like that's a huge force multiplier. Oh yeah. That's true. I mean, it, it makes everybody, you know, a little piece of home, you know, cause you don't typically get that on deployments and you know, those dogs are that little comfort item kind of. When did you get out of the Navy? I got out. I was medically retired in 2018. Okay. What happened? Um, skydiving. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. I got, uh, I was in a skydiving accident at nighttime downwind landing folded in half forward didn't know it at the time because i actually have a scar going all the way across my my lip here where i put my teeth through my face essentially so i got up looked at my nods it was all red i was like why is it red it's like oh there's blood everywhere and then um kind of hurt because i just got smashed into the ground going probably 35 40 miles an hour went back got my face stitched up body was sore didn't think really anything of it and then come to find out like six months later I had two crushed vertebrae in my back. They're wedge compression fractures. So it essentially took the rectangles and turned them into triangles in my L1 and L2, which then, because I didn't really know about it, healed them incorrectly and healed correctly. Um, and then just radiated down, just straightened my spine essentially where it healed, uh, degenerative disc disease, uh, spondylolisthesis. I have a bunch of facet and nerve issues. And then I was 26 at the time. So they're basically like, yeah, we're not going to fuse the lower back, the entire lower back of a 26 year old. Cause you, you do that. And then from there, it's just fusion, 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 fusion. And then you can only do that so many times and still be a functioning human. So you're just going to have to ride the pain train until you're old enough or technology comes along. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the goal. That sucks. It's a bad place to be. A lot yeah. of people are in that position. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it happens a lot. I mean, that's what's crazy about, you know, that line of work is the spinal doctor we had. He's, he's one of the best. And to have somebody like that who sees those daily, just be like, yeah, man, I'm not, not going to sugarcoat it like you're effed. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're done for. You can't, yeah. you can't keep doing this. Uh, yeah. How's your transition been uh, to being a civilian? It's been good. Um, you know, when I first got out, it sucked. So that, that brotherhood that you build, losing that, it's really hard. And then you kind of see they're still your friends that are still in are still off doing the things that you you love doing. And, uh, you know, I left with, because I wasn't, didn't really leave fully on my own terms. You know, I left with goals and stuff on the table that, you know, I wish I could have hit, but I didn't. Um, but once you kind of got, I got past that, that was uh, not bad. And you're coaching wrestling now. Yeah, I help. Yeah, my, my little my son's four, and he just got into wrestling, and I kind of help coach the the other four year olds, which is want to rip your hair out sometimes, but it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, but he uh, he's really liking it, and it, the last tournament he did, it really started to click, and he really started to have fun. Which four year olds wrestling, you know, they just base out, they go out there, hug each other, and the first one to fall over is basically the winner. But yeah, I coach a lot of little kids wrestling, and I think first graders are are the best man, first graders, second graders, they, they can start to learn and get it. And they don't really fight you on stuff. Um, they're excited about it. And then it yeah. kind of goes downhill until they turn to be like juniors and seniors in high school. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I could definitely see that. What weight did you wrestle? I wrestled, let's see, 135. Well, it's funny. I wrestled 167 my, my eighth grade year, and then I wrestled 135 my freshman year. Yeah. And then uh, 145, and then my junior and senior, I wrestled 152. Were you cutting a lot of weight every year? Um, not my first two years. My junior year, I had a, I walked around I was like 160, about super lean. And then my senior year, I walked around at like 170. So I cut a lot my senior year, and that, that really sucked. Yeah. That was my big deterrent when I was looking at, at wrestling, you know, for the military academies after college as I was over dieting. You know, I'd cut, cut weight hard basically since like sixth and seventh grade. And I was just over it, man. Yeah. Um, you know, I would eat like I'd eat a little bit after weigh in on Friday. I'd eat everything I could um, after weigh in on Saturday. And then by Wednesday night, I was done. You know, I wouldn't eat or drink water again until until uh, I was weighed in. Man, it was just brutal. You know, I was losing 40 pounds, 35 pounds between football and wrestling every year. And yeah. I was guiding and, and cowboying and stuff like that during the summer. So I was, you know, I was just a, a big guy and I, I really shouldn't have been doing that. There is a weird culture and I don't know if it's in every state, but it certainly was here in Oregon about just needing to cut weight like crazy and find, find those lower weight brackets for some reason. And I wish I would have just wrestled heavier, you know, wrestled 71 or 89 and just been happy. Yeah. I feel the same way. Absolutely. And I'll definitely, yeah push my son and not cut weight or I wasn't pushing myself, but like you said, it was the culture and you just wanted to be the lightest. You thought you could be the strongest, but then you're just drained anyway. So it really didn't matter. Yeah. But you're also super mad because you haven't, you know, had anything to eat for a few days and anger and wrestling can be kind of helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Where are you working these days? So I started with some, my business partners, a company called Norton Outdoors and Norton Knives from Norton, but they're split into two divisions. So my partner who we had on a couple weeks ago at the Hunt Expo, Seth, and then uh, I own Brandon and then Josh Fry from uh, from the knife side. He's our bladesmith. We kind of all partnered up and created this outdoor soft goods slash knife company. It seems like we're in the golden age of like uh, a hybrid commercial slash custom knife. Like mm-hmm. they're, there's some companies out there that are doing, doing really well with it. What's your guys's take on it? I mean, a knife is a, is a super old tool. I was researching something on it a while ago and I think it was almost like 10,000 years between the oldest evidence of using a knife and the first evidence of using a fire to cook meat. So we've been cutting stuff for a lot longer than we've even been cooking it. Um, and I don't know what, what, what's new, what's changing. Like, how do you, how do you come up with such a simple thing that's different from everybody else? I think it's really one, it's, it's personal brand and kind of what flavor you put on it. Um, our whole design philosophy from knives and outdoors is making things extremely modular. And so you can create it to what you want it to be used for. So we try to not build in too many features to everything that, kind of pigeonholes you into one use or, you know, you know, one setup to run it. Um, so I think that's one thing that really helps instead of you as a brand, putting your flair on it is allowing people to kind of do their thing with it. 
And then, uh, you know, the second side of that is knives, like you said, or everybody kind of has been using them forever. And there's all these people that do different things. So it's a combination of this, of steels with handle material, with how that handle material is attached, how you, what kind of sheets you use, what, you know, what you're using to hold that sheath on with. It's all personal preference, but there's all a reason behind it. You know, and each different thing speaks to a different audience. The sheath is, is an underlooked part of the program. I think Kydex has done wonderful things for a lot of people, but it, it gets short-stepped a lot of times too. What, what's your take on knife sheets? Uh, we, we do all Kydex and we kind of do three different, three different delivery methods. I guess we do a, a taco, we do kind of a pancake style. So we have one piece that's folded over. So you get a super lightweight minimalist, basically a blade cover with a thumb break on it. So instead of it pinching on the blade, you know, it holds around that bottom of the blade. So it gives you really good retention. You use that thumb to break the seal. How about the next one for like our middle line of size wise, we use a, a pancake style. Um, those are, that's same thing. We use grommets so you can change everything up. We use, you know, Chicago style screws so you can move straps around, take them off, put it in your pack or put a blade tack or any type of attachment hardware you want on it. And then we take it one step farther with our, our larger line knives and we do more of like a, a belt drop it's kind of a longer blade to wear on your belt scout style or something like that um so you know those are all made out of kydex um i'm kind of an old-fashioned guy so i like leather myself too uh, but the kydex like you said you're put, talking about weight strength you know resistance to the elements you yeah. really i don't think you can be kydex when it comes to all those things oh it's it's wonderful stuff i don't know that that leather would really exist for holsters in any form if Kydex had come along first, yeah, you know? oh, definitely. But like, I, I still use a, a leather um, holster for my 365, but it's got some plastic components on the inside for, for retention on the trigger guard and stuff like that. It's a, uh, I don't know. Holsters are just, they're so personal and they're so important because if it doesn't work well and it's not convenient and suited for what you're doing, then you're not going to bring the thing with you. You know, whether it's a, a knife or a gun or a hatchet or, or whatever else, you're just not going to do it if that holster doesn't function correctly. Yeah, absolutely. Talk to me about knife steel a little bit. I'm definitely not the, not the expert. That'd be Josh. Um, but right now we're using, we went from a nitro V, uh, which is a really good, strong stainless steel um, to CPM three V, which is made in the U S uh, I, I personally, just from, from using them, I think my lot, my personal ascent, I have the same one I've used for all season. And I think I did what I did last year, four elk, three deer and a bear and never had to never touch it to a stone or a grinder, just a ceramic honing rod. Just, you know, I kept it in my pocket when I started to feel that blade catch a little bit, I just pull it out, do two or three swipes on each side and just keep going. I think that's what's nice about those those harder harder steels is I mean that thing is and the care on it is pretty minimal. We have stone wash and DLC, so we put a coating on the CPM 3V, a DLC coating, and you know the corrosion resistance is is awesome. And then, like I said, that thing just stays hair puffing sharp with very little effort, as long as you keep it that way. You know you don't let it get too dull, and that's when you know, it could potentially, you have to work it more on a stone or a grinder, which is why we have our, 
return policy where we have or not return policy, but we call it a spot treatment. So if there's any issues with your knife, you let it get too dull, you can't get it sharp, you send it back to us. We put a new edge on it for you for free and send it back to you. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, sharp and once honed forever is yep. is some advice that a lot of a lot of folks could benefit from. And sometimes including myself. Like I'll I'll be going along and then realize that I let a knife get dull. And if it's a really hard steal, it's like, okay, now I've got some sure enough work to do to get this thing right again. I love knives. I don't know. I've always loved knives. Loved knives when I was a little kid. Loved knives now. I don't see that changing at any time. I think that's just part of being a guy. Yeah. They're such a useful tool. I mean, you can use them for anything, really. I mean, I don't think I've ever had a point in my life where I haven't had a knife from when I was like four year old, four years old. And my dad gave me my first little like Swiss Army knife with the, you know, the toothpick and the and the fingernail clippers on it to when I was in the teams carrying a carrying a wing player for nine years almost you know yeah you always just have a knife with you no matter what that was what you were trained to do yeah so you had a winkler tomahawk or winkler knife a winkler knife i both but i carried a a winkler knife for this kind of sad story i had it i got it as a new guy uh had it all the way through and then when i was guiding the bob last summer or two summers ago i jumped up on my horse and just had a scalp carry my back and had a leather sheath and uh reached back just touch point just to see if it was still there and it was gone. I searched for hours and never found it. So some that lucky sucks. SOB probably got one found on the trail somewhere. But. Probably don't know what they have either. Yeah. Yeah. That's a bummer. I use uh, a little ax for game processing um, that a local guy here made for me and I can skin and gut and quarter and everything with it. You know, I'm not going to do it on like some deep hardcore backcountry hunt because the thing's heavy and, and I don't necessarily need it. But if I'm hunting elk or like I took it moose hunting last year, it's a great tool. I think that that's a really underrated cutting tool for hunters is, is having a, a, a really good ax or, or hatchet or tomahawk, whatever. It gets a little bit nebulous, how, how you, which word you want to use, but yeah, good tool. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what else does Norton do? So the, that's kind of the knife side. The soft goods side is we make, we kind of broke it up into three divisions. So we have hunting, fishing, and defense. So we kind of try to use it to leverage everybody's backgrounds. So I was a hunting and fishing guide and then did a little bit with you know, tactical stuff. We have Seth, who's you know, we see a pretty big shooter and does a lot of stuff with that. And then we kind of bring everybody's expertise together and develop different systems for each of those. And then systems that can be utilized in all of those. Like it's always a you know thing when you're in the military, it's everything should have more than one use. And we kind of I really try to bring that forward when we're when we're designing stuff and when we're working on things. Like we developed um, a chest rig system that we call the UCR Universal Chest Rig because I'm not really clever with names or anything like that. Give it an acronym. Yeah, give it an acronym. And uh, it's kind of a cool system because when I was guiding, I had this issue of I had my fly fishing gear, I had my chest holster, I had my vinyl pouch, I had my packs, and none of them really worked well together because everything was always kind of an afterthought. You know, it wasn't like, let's design this into the, as a feature, as in do, how can we add this to this? So we kind of went backwards and pulled inspiration from all of our experiences and came up with a system where it's a, a pouch that you can then remove the back from and put on your fly fishing rig, remove the back, you know, take that off, put 
put on a, a micro chest rig for carrying three AR mags and going to the range with. Um, and we were able to do that. We actually patented the system or it's patent pending the system to do it. And we use different things like rotating buckles to make it so you don't have those friction points or straight pull buckles that you get. It's, these systems move with you and they stay you know, close to your body. And the material choices we use is a lot different than what other people are using. And we're kind of trying to expand upon that. And we just launched that actually at the Hunt Expo and we had unbelievable feedback. Like I was really nervous going into it because you're, you're bringing something to the table that is brand new that nobody else is doing. So you always, you know, we, we designed it and tested it for a year in a bubble up here. And then we took it there and the feedback was unbelievable on it. Oh, that's fantastic. I got to see a little bit of that with Seth, but I didn't get to look into it close enough. I of course carry a pistol with me pretty much regardless. And I love a chest harness I've used a few different ones. Um, I still think that, that there's work to be done out there. You know, it, it's not perfect yet, but I also haven't got to try yours. So I need to put that on my list of things to do. And yeah, Seth is a great guy. I really enjoyed talking to him. I mean, for as far as army guys go, he's, he's pretty cool. Pretty solid. Yeah. It's not too bad. There's uh, another Navy guy that works here. So the, the banter's decently high back okay. and forth, but yeah, yeah. That's good. That's good. Yeah. And uh, yeah, man. So where, where can people learn more about, about Norden and both your knife and, and soft good stuff? Yeah, so we're on pretty much all the major social platforms. Um, we actually had to separate knives and outdoors. So you go to, you know, at Norden knives for knives at Norden outdoors for outdoors. We had to do that for advertising purposes. Um you know, you can't run an ad or promote a post or do anything like that to reach a larger audience with knives, but you can do that with soft goods. Yeah. So by, by keeping them separate, it allowed us to, you know, kind of grow them independently, but at the same time. And then if for some reason, someday we get removed, knives get removed from social media, outdoors is still intact. And then the same thing for the websites. So it's nordenoutdoors.com and then nordenknives.com. Okay. And, uh, it's the same thing. Like if a, you run an ad and it leads back to a website that sells a knife, no bueno. So yeah. gotcha. it really gets you. Yeah. That's so frustrating. So frustrating. It's extremely frustrating. But we're also on YouTube too. We're trying to do some more educational stuff, get stuff about our system. And then just, you know, we hunt 24 seven. So we live in Northwest Montana. So pretty much every day after work, the weekends, you know, when hunting season rolls around, it's the ghost town. So yeah. We're up in the mountains. So we're trying to do some more stuff for education and filming and showing people kind of our lifestyle up here. Okay. Well, that's great. And you're in a wonderful part of the country. Um, I've done quite a bit of, quite a bit of bear hunting up there and, and a bit of fishing and I love it. You're, you're in a good spot. I'm glad you're there. Oh yeah. That's awesome. We moved here. I retired. And then three days later we were here. I had a vehicle loaded up, ready to roll. I got signed my paper, got in the truck and drove straight here and you know, spent the next six months in the Bob Marshall and probably will never leave. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Good for you. Well, man, thank you very much for your time. All jokes aside, thank you very much for what you've done for our country. Proud of you. It's pretty badass. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's fun. It's fun to kind of hear the process. You know, there's a lot that goes into into a human before they become operational, whether they're, whether they're a soldier or an airman or, or a seal or whatever. 
And that's, that's part of it that doesn't really get talked about. You know, I think when most people see it, they think of like boot camp and then somebody hands you a rifle and then you're operational. And it's like, no, it's, it's years, it's years yeah. of really, really taxing training um, before you're ever, before you're ever operational. And that's why we're good at it because we put a lot into it. Yeah. There's a lot of behind the scenes and, you know, the, the, the non-sexy stuff that goes into it, that's what really makes it. Yeah. All right, man. Well, I appreciate your time. Take care. Yeah. Thanks, son. So I found this old ad and there's like dudes dressed up like construction workers and a guy's got a jackhammer and there's a crane and, you know, they're moving all these big steel beams and stuff. Aladdin Stanley Thurks. Stanley, the tough all-steel thermos bottle that's completely dependable. They're showing this thermos, like, falling off this building and hitting all this other construction stuff. And built to take a bounding year after year. <laughs> Get the top one. Oh, it's a wheelbarrow. Guy grabs it out of the wheelbarrow. Now he's going to pour himself a cup of coffee. I love these cheesy old ads. And most of the time, like they're lying to us, right? That's most of what marketing used to be was just like telling a lie or, or at least telling a version of a lie that, that made you think that you needed this thing. But we'll tell you what, when it's cold out, like it is right now, the only way to keep liquid liquid and not freezing in your pack is by putting it in something that's insulated. So packing a thermos in the wintertime is really smart, whether it's for a hot beverage like coffee or if you just want to bring some water with you, which is a really important thing if you're going to be out adventuring around in this uh, in this snow that we've got all over the country. And I think you should be because it's a great time of year to get out and about. You know, this is both a comfort and a safety thing. If you want to get something from Stanley, which I encourage you to do, you can use the discount code 6RANCH. That's the number 6 in the word ranch. And that'll get you 25% off of just about anything on their website encourage you to do that. They're great supporters of the show and uh, great supporters of this audience. And I love you guys. So stay warm out there, have a nice warm drink and uh, make sure you're drinking it out of a Stanley product. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.